your cats are obsessed with my wagon. Oh, 100%. I literally now have to get a wagon. For them, for groceries, but it for them. It's, it's for them. It's a cat catcher. Honestly, it gets them, it would get them out of my hair. Like, I'm doing laundry and stuff and want them to leave me alone. Just open the wagon in the living room. <laughs> Boom. So, you guys, I have... It's actually one of those utility carts. And it's the best thing I've purchased for myself in so long. I live in an apartment. And it's... It's exactly what I need to carry, like, groceries and things. Like, everything from my car. Like, nothing is, nothing's hard anymore. I mean, but literally for the cats, this is the exact same as giving, like, a two-year-old your phone at dinner. So they just, like, play words with friends or, I don't know what two-year-olds do with phones. <laughs> play out words with friends. <laughs> they're, they're, like, spelling, like, xylophone. <laughs> Honestly, go, good for them. Like, they're going to a magnet school or something. I don't care. Uh, but, yeah, this is... I have never seen them so obsessed with getting into a place. It's wonderful. Yes. And so the reason I know that Tyler's cats really like my utility card is because I'm in Austin. Oh, yes. Brittany's here. We are sitting at my uh, dining room table right now, sitting across from each other. It's It's been a while since we recorded in person. There's kind of been a pandemic since then. <laughs> Literally. Like this entire year. I can't even remember. It was last year. Last time we did this. I have no idea. Yeah, listeners, y'all will know more than we will. Because I don't know. And speaking of who who the hell are we, um, this is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And we're in person. And we wear masks. Unlike so many people in my apartment complex, we found out today. Yeah, apparently everyone's going out tonight. Um, it is Friday night, and I'm like, you guys, y'all are part of the problem. You didn't know that. You know, part the, of the o- problem. The only person that I remember that we saw with a mask was a Sparkle Shoes lady. Did she have a mask on? I think she had a mask on. She did. Oh, and the people who have been delivering food or like uh, packages. We've yeah, seen them. They've they've been great with the masks. Everyone else is like not, and I don't I don't get it, y'all. Uh, more and more people are dying every day. Please wear a mask. Just wear a mask. That's just wear a mask. Just wear a mask. That's all we're asking. Well, I think we should just jump right on in. What do you think? I think let us let's make it like a trampoline and just jump on in. So, I'm going to tell you guys about our topic, and I'm really excited for Tyler to tell you about the wine. Oh my god, y'all. So (laughs) Topic first. Topic first. So, this week, we are doing one of our Patreon picks. I know we've mentioned this in the past, but if you have not ventured over to Patreon to go check out what we are offering over there, there's some murder minis, there's some live videos, we've got a lot of other live videos coming up. I think we're going to do another like Zoom call in January or something like that. That's Yeah, that's the plan, so get ready to hear that soon, hear more about the plans for that at least. Yes, and one of the top perks is getting to direct your own episode. So this week... Our episode is directed by Lisa Huffings, and we're going to talk about murders in Music City. That's Nashville, baby. Ew. Why did I say baby? I don't know. It may be uh, uncomfortable. Yeah, don't but do that. It's, it's Nashville. It's Nashville. <laughs> murders in Nashville. So there's, uh, apparently like in the 70s, Nashville was known as like a, I don't know, there were a lot of serial killers there, so that's crazy. A lot of murders, murders. So many. And there was this one guy, Paul something or other, I don't remember his name, it's not the case I did. Paul Murderer. But he was like this fast food murderer. He was going around robbing fast food restaurants and murdering people. And it's like, oh, why, dude? That's kind of like, um, you did the KFC murders that were here in Texas so long ago. I think it was a murder mini you did them in. Maybe. I think it was one of our first murder minis, but robbed a fast food place and like murdered everyone. I mean, like, dude, if you want your hot chicken, just go fucking buy it. I'm going to go murder people. I have never had Nashville hot chicken. It's really good. You're doing yourself a disservice, but you've never been to Nashville, have you? No. Okay, then that's probably why you haven't had it. I live in the other bachelorette party capital of the world. You really why? do. Why are Austin <laughs> and Nashville? I'm like, okay. You know, they're they're very similar cities. Yeah. Music, both very music in different ways, but in very similar ways also. Yeah. Like, honestly, if I could pick any other city in the U.S. that's not like New York or L.A., because those are, that's different, where you could just like go into a bar and find music on any street corner. Nashville, Austin, and Portland, probably. Yeah. 
I love Nashville. One of my best friends is from there. And so I've visited with her a couple of times and have had an absolute blast. Every time I go, I want to go back. But we're going to be talking about things about Nashville that are not reasons you wouldn't want to travel because these were murders. Yep. We're not going to be talking about the Parthenon that's there. We're not going to be talking about the Country Music Hall of Fame that's there. We're not going to be talking about the AT&T Tower that looks like Batman headquarters. <laughs> I love that tower. <laughs> We're not going to be talking about one of my favorite places and it closed down. It was called Paradise Park, but it was literally like one of those amazing grungy live music bars with like games. God damn it, it was so much fun, but I think it's gone. But we're not going to be talking about that either. We're going to talk about murder. But before we talk about murder, we're going to talk about wine. Let me go get it. And um, I might need the cart. I might need your <laughs> wagon to go get the wine. I think you do. All right. I am back with this wine. And I, I brought tools. I have more in the background uh, in case we need them. Because uh, this wine is the 2019 Incanto Rosso from Puglia, Italy. Puglia? Puglia? It's from Italy. And we got this at Trader Joe's. It's a little more expensive than we normally do. It's $20. And that's because it's a double magnum. (laughs) It's three liters. So if you need a party wine, just go pick this up. And like, one of the things about this bottle is that we didn't grab glasses. We're just going to drink it from the bottle, passing it back and forth until we finish. (laughs) No. No, but one of the things about this bottle is the neck of it is like thick. It's girthy. (laughs) And so I don't think any of my wine openers will work on it so i have a knife i have a wine opener i also have a screw and a hammer in the background <laughs> just in case we need to like college party this wine open so yeah because i think it's a cork yeah i mean it, it doesn't look like it's a screw top uh but before i get it open let's talk about what it is so it's just a red wine who knows yeah, what's inside i think one of the things i saw people talking about was like notes of like cab Or, like, it had a cab blend in it. So, there's that. One person said, it's a nice red wine from Italy. Simple and spicy with red and black fruits with chocolate notes and light vegetables. Ew. That's weird. (laughs) Like, I'm like, mmm, I'm getting a little bit of carrot and celery. That's the vegetables I was thinking. (laughs) Like a stew. It's a mirepoix Mm. in a bottle. Oh, my God. Honestly, I'm going to trademark that. I'm going to make the mirepoix wine. You know how Jones Soda makes the Thanksgiving sodas? I forgot all about that, and I never tried one because that's just disgusting. So Jones is in Seattle. Uh, it's a Seattle-based Soda company, and every year they make a Thanksgiving six-pack. And it's like, one of them is cranberry sauce, one's pumpkin pie, one's stuffing, one's mashed potatoes and gravy, one's turkey, I think one's green bean casserole. Sodas. Flavored. I've never had a... I, I want to try the cranberry one. I mean, yeah, that one's probably good, but no one wants a stuffing soda. I'd try it and like, Vom.com. But uh, anyway, so this one, vegetables, chocolate, red and black fruits. It's medium-bodied, uh, medium acidity, easy drinking and gentle. Chocolate-covered oh celery. Oh, God. <laughs> it's good with food or by itself for parties as it is a double magnum. Yeah. You show up to this... the dinner party with this and you're like, don't worry, guys, I've got wine for everyone. I'm just going to say, there's a lot of phallic undertones with this. Double magnum, its size and shape. We see what y'all are doing in Canto Rosso. Another person said it's thin and young, just like me. And then the last review I had that they said it is definitely underrated in my most humble opinion. Oh, I don't like this person already. They said, especially when considering the value relative to price, a huge three liter dose of perfectly tasty table wine for $18.99 from Trader Joe's. So they got it for a dollar cheaper than us. This simple wine fit the bill wonderfully. Berries slash cherry, soft tannins, mild acidity, and a hint of pepper. I mean, yeah, if you need a lot of wine, here you go. See, the thing I will say, though, is we may have fucked up because it's just the two of us. And with red wine, you kind of want to finish it by the second day. We We won't. We have to invite people over, but we're in a pandemic, so that's not happening. Maybe we will be cooking with wine tomorrow. I think that sounds like a plan. Well, Tyler, let's try to get into this. I will try my best. Oh, it is a cork. Oh my god, it is. Okay, wait. 
So I have the wine opener, like the wine key thingy. Do you think that would work better than yours? Wait, try yours. Um. Is it going to work, do you think? I don't. It might break it. Oh, no. Is it coming out? No, not yet. Yes. Oh, no. Cork's too big. Yeah, that's oh, not happening. Oh, my God. That's not happening. <laughs> you really, that would be the time you rip the neck off the bottle. Okay, uh. All right, Brittany, your wine opener is up next. Mine failed. All right, let's see if this works. All right, y'all, uh, Brittany's trying now. Let's see if I can do this. So far, so good. I think this will work. I think so, too, but I need to stand up. It's coming. Oh. it's <laughs> the biggest cork I've ever seen. Okay, the wine bottle is successfully open. Tyler, I do not trust myself to pour this. Let me um, pour this three liter bottle of wine next to our Mac computers. <laughs> I think you need to stand up and pour. I'm not a waiter. <laughs> but I guess I will be. Let me go get a towel on my arm. Oh, I'm scared. <laughs> it's going to like go all over my lap. <laughs> you guys, this is the funniest thing I've ever seen. I don't know. Tell me when. That's good. God, it's like Parmesan cheese and Olive Garden. I'm just going to fill it to the top. <laughs> Keep going. Okay, well. I guess we should smell it. It smells like red wine. It smells very fruity. It's uh, strong. Oh, it's like <laughs> so fruity. It's almost like a nail polish remover. <laughs> what fruits are you eating? You should throw those fruits away if they remind you of nail polish remover. Okay, this just reminds me of nail polish remover. Grape soda. Oh my god, that's what it smells what? like. What wine are you drinking? I'm not getting grape... Well, oh if, my god, no, I get what you're meaning. I'm like, if oh I... Oh my god, that's purple Fanta. If I was ever wondering if I had COVID, I know I don't now, because I can smell this. Okay, but remember how many wines there are that smell really fruity and do not taste fruity. It's it's a European wine, so you're smelling grape soda. It might taste like orange soda. <laughs> Come on, Kel, we have wine for you. I think it's going to taste like grape medicine. I don't, I think you're wrong. I think it is going to taste like wine. I think it's a double magnum and I am afraid. But okay, let's just do this. Here we go. Cheers. Cheers. That's totally fine. That's a table red wine. Yeah. Honestly, it's not bad. It kind of reminds me of the Chianti that every wannabe Italian restaurant has that's in the little straw bowl thing. <laughs> yeah, that you can get at the store for like 10 bucks. Yeah, that you put yep. a candle in when you're done with it. Mm-hmm. We've um, all done that at least once. Yeah. It reminds me of that. Yeah. It is very much your basic red table wine. I feel like there are a little bit of notes of leather-ish. Like there's like leather or spice in there a little bit. Yeah. Definitely your your red fruits. Let's see what the people say. So red and black fruits, chocolate notes, vegetables, berries, cherries, and a hint of pepper is like the combined holistic vegetables. I, I'm still not. Yeah, I'm I'm not getting mirepoix out of this wine, but I am getting pepper. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, and it's a good temp because um th- this doesn't fit in anyone's fridge. But it's like 40 degrees outside, so I just put it on my balcony. <laughs> and it, honestly, nature's wine fridge is the outside winter. Thanks, Elsa. Okay, well, we have the world's largest bottle of wine. I can't quote that, but it's the largest bottle of wine I've ever opened. I mean, we're sitting at the table. It is also sitting on the table. It's about as tall as we are. It's like, it's got its own seat. But we've got our wine, and we've talked about our topic. Tyler, tell us about your Music City Murder. What case did you pick? The case I'm doing is one that Lisa actually mentioned to us when she gave us the topic. She asked if one of us would be able to dive into the murder of Marsha Trimble. And the second I read a little bit about this case, I knew I had to do it because I knew it was one. Y'all need to know this case. It's one that if y'all are in Nashville, you definitely heard this. It is heartbreaking. It's a horrifying case. And it's it's one that I'm I'm shocked I hadn't heard of it really before. Yeah, and I think there are some trigger warnings for sure in yours. Yes, definitely trigger warnings for violence against children, rape, and just it, it's a rough case involving a child. It's horrific. 
So the sources I used, I used the Wikipedia page for the murder of Marsha Trimble. I used an article in the Tennessean newspaper by Karen Grigsby, an article in Inside Hook by Steve Huff, and then a blog I found, or a blog post I found, on the Night Owl Gale blog. It's a blog by this person named Gale, and it's on WordPress. Really well written. I really... I don't know. It's worth to enjoy, but like her writing style and her use of language was really good. She had a first person account because she grew up in Nashville. She was a sophomore in high school when all of this happened. So being able to kind of read it in her own words and kind of take the role behind her eyes as she remembered it and lived through it. It was really, really fascinating, really heartbreaking, but definitely... Check out her blog. She has a lot of other different posts, not just about like murders and Nashville and stuff, but a whole host of things. That's very interesting to hear about a perspective from someone who wasn't necessarily related to the victim, not law enforcement, not a reporter, just someone who happened to live in the city at that time and hearing their account of it. Well, someone who was also a young woman. I mean, she was a sophomore in high school and Marsha Trimble was nine years old. So there's a little bit of an age difference, but still, I mean, very much something that Gail was at an age living through it that she remembered being nine. Her parents very much remember when Gail was nine years old and kind of having that uh, lens to it all. Yeah. So on February 25th of 1975, nine-year-old Marsha Trimble, she's out delivering Girl Scout cookies and like selling Girl Scout cookies in the Green Hills neighborhood of Nashville. Oh my god, like so many of us can put ourselves in her shoes right now. Oh, who yeah. wasn't who wasn't out going and selling Girl Scout cookies? Yeah, and the the Green Hills neighborhood, it's a very fancy kind of like upper class, upper middle class neighborhood. It's where Marsha and her family live. So she's not far from home. It feels very safe. Right. So no one's going to think twice. I mean, one, it's 1975, but I feel like even today you wouldn't, oh, you're up, you're up selling Girl Scout cookies. I mean, I don't know, maybe today you might be like, okay, well, I'll go like sit in the car and like wave to the family from the mailbox. But yeah, she was out doing her Girl Scout stuff. And that day she vanished. Her disappearance, it was investigated by local and state police The FBI also joined the case because the possibility of it being a kidnapping. It was the top news story of every TV news station for weeks. Where's Marsha? What could have happened to her? And for 33 days, the police, the FBI, and thousands of people searched for Marsha Trimble. Search parties are so overwhelming and just heartbreaking. Like, it's a way for the city to, like, come together in in how they feel like they can support, like doing something. It's just, Mm -hmm. I love seeing so many people come together for an actionable thing where they're like, okay, we need to find her. We need to find her alive. We know the first 48 hours is extremely important in a missing person's case. And it just, it's heartbreaking, but also like very, what is the word I'm looking for there? It's like on the tip of my tongue, but it's just so like fills you with awe. Yeah. And like, It's just one of those things that it fills you with hope because there are so many people searching. Yeah. Well, in this case, it hit everyone in Nashville. There were a couple of sources I read that called this the day Nashville died. I mean, it was was something that, I don't know, it hit differently than so many other news stories you see and so many other horrible crimes or deaths you see. This was, to a lot of people... Marsha was kind of everyone's daughter or sister or cousin. Everyone has a Marsha in their life and felt this loss together, like with the whole city. On Easter Sunday, 33 days after she disappeared, Marsha Trimble's body was found. She was found in a neighbor's backyard garage. It was this like white... Yeah, it's this white wooden, like, dilapidated, unattached, open garage, like the ones you see on older properties that are away from the house. Kind of, honestly, more shed than garage, but it only has three walls. And, I mean, this garage, the people who lived there, the neighbors, they really never used it. I mean, it was just full of junk and kind of their 
storage shed, basically. So basically, she could have been in there for almost this entire time and they would never have known. Well, she could have been. Her body was found by a family member that was visiting the house and they'd gone out to the garage because they were looking for something. And the owner's like, oh, it's, it's in the garage. So they're searching for, I don't know, who knows what, dishes, presents, I, I don't know. And they discovered Marsha's body. Oh my god. I can't even imagine. She was partially hidden under a shower curtain and a children's like waiting pool. And at first, this guy who found her, he thought this was a doll. I mean, it was a shed filled with a bunch of shit. Yeah. And so it'd be weird to have a mannequin or a life-size doll, but I mean, that's what you're going to think you find a body. There were also Girl Scout cookies scattered around her, but her cookie money was gone. Wow. Oh, God. I just had the picture of her being this happening to her because they wanted to rob her fucking cookie money. And this garage, it was only about 150 yards or 150 meters from the Trimble house. And the garage had been searched before. Wait, it had actually already been searched? Yes. Which is that why you said she could have been in there the whole time, but maybe wasn't? Well, some of the investigators were adamant that they were like, no, we searched it. She was not there before. Other investigators, though, said that because her body was hidden amongst all the clutter and the trash and everything, she was missed. She was there. So she may have been. I think she probably was. So they clearly didn't search thoroughly. It was more of a like, oh, look, in, look nope, don't see her. Yeah, that's kind of what it sounds like. Despite her having been dead for 33 days, her body was not very badly decomposed. Was it cold? It was cold because she disappeared in February. They found her a month later. Yeah. It, it gets cold it's in Nashville. Winter. Yeah. An autopsy showed that she'd been strangled and she had a broken hyoid bone, which indicated that's how she died. She'd been strangled to death. She'd also been sexually assaulted. She was fully clothed, but semen was found on her shirt, pants, and in her vagina. Police initially suspected that a juvenile male must have done this, and they felt like it must have been someone Marcia knew. And they thought that her murder had probably been accidental, that her killer had just meant to rape her and killed her. There was speculation that Marsha had been murdered somewhere else and then brought to the garage, but other investigators thought that she likely had been sexually assaulted somewhere else and then lured into the garage and murdered there. Because most of the forensic evidence pointed to the fact that Marsha had probably been killed there in the garage and probably the same night that she disappeared. And by the dirt on her shoes, looked like she'd walked into the garage and hadn't been dragged or anything. I hate all of this, but at least we're, there's not this image or like we, there's not evidence that she was kidnapped and then like held somewhere and then yeah. murdered at a later point because it had been over a month. Yeah. After finding Marsha's body, investigators searched the neighborhood. They canvassed it because they believed it was most likely the murderer was a local resident, someone in the neighborhood, her own neighborhood. Well, and you were saying, like, they thought it was a young boy, like, also an adolescent, and... Well, police, they zeroed in on a 15-year-old boy named Jeffrey Womack. He lived near Marsha's home, and he was one of the last people to see her alive. Marsha had come to Womack's house on the day she disappeared, and Womack had said he'd sent her away because he didn't have any money to buy cookies. Like, she'd come to the door like, you want tagalongs? And he was like, I don't have any money. And he said that after he learned she disappeared, he immediately went to Marsha's house, tell her parents, like, I saw her around this time. She was at my house. Like, he's doing what you're supposed to do. Right. Womack said that after he talked to Marsha's parents and told them, you know, when he'd last seen her, what had happened, the police aggressively questioned him and made him, like, empty out his pockets and inside his pockets, he had a half roll of pennies, a $5 bill, and a condom. And so the police were like, well, you said you didn't have any money for the cookies. In your story, you have $5 and a half roll of pennies. And I, I don't know how much cookies were then. They're $4 a box now. So 
yeah, you could have bought boxes for five bucks, but if he didn't want to spend his five dollars on cookies, like I know, just because you are offered Girl Scout cookies, I mean, you you should buy them, but you don't have to. I don't understand that mindset. Same, but apparently the people questioning him didn't either. I mean, the Girl Scouts corner me, I go into the grocery store, and I walk out with half the groceries, and they have rest of my cart filled with Samoas. You're basically like, I'll take one box. No, no like... Like a crate. The, the box. Like the whole, a shipping container. The case. I want the... How many do you have? I want them all. How much is your college tuition? I will pay that in cookies. But... So they're questioning him. They're saying, you have money. Why, why are you lying to us? And because he also had a condom in his pocket, the police were like, okay, you sexually abused Marsha. That is taking a lot of leaps because I, I feel like a lot of men have condoms in their pockets. Well, that's what he told them. He was like, I had the condom because I have a sexual relationship with my girlfriend. So I'm being safe. And according to Womack, his mom and then a neighbor found out that police were questioning him. Because I guess when he went over to Marsha's house to mm-hmm. tell her parents, the police were there. And, like, that's when they questioned him. But he's a minor, right? He's, yeah, like, he's 15. Yeah, he's 15. Oh, no, And so no. his mom found out. I guess one of the neighbors saw this happening, told Womack's mom. And she was like, oh, hell no. You are not questioning my son without a lawyer present, without me there. So they insisted... No, you're not going to interrogate him anymore without a lawyer present. And because of Womack wanting to call a lawyer, police became more suspicious of him. Because they felt that, you know, an innocent person wouldn't need a lawyer. No, oh my god. So we've heard that before. Yep. And it's, I wonder how loud this is going to be. I know, yeah, I'm, I'm pouring more wine, so. Here, also give me some if you're pouring. Oh my god. <laughs> I kind of feel like... The is it the Aquarius or is it the Virgo? Who's dumping the water? Who's the Zodiac? I don't know. Well, I feel like her. But what I was saying, I feel like we have talked about this before and this has been said by, like, it's used. It's like, oh, well, if you need a lawyer, it clearly means you're not innocent. And that is, that's a scare tactic. That mm-hmm. is a scare tactic that is used and I'm sure it works on some people, but literally just know no matter what, if you're ever in a position where you're being questioned by law enforcement, you have the right to have a lawyer. It's one of your rights. So, yeah. like, innocent, guilty, it doesn't matter. If it makes you more comfortable, have a lawyer. And if you don't have one, they're required to bring one for you. Like, it's... Yeah. It's part of your Miranda rights. Wait, is that Miranda rights? Yeah. And it's like, you have a right to remain silent. What do you think you say? Can it will be used against you? You have the right to an attorney. If you, if you can't, can't have one, one, we'll we provide but, I mean, if they're not arresting him, I don't think they have to Mirandize him. Uh, that's a good point. That's a very good point. I think that happens when you are arrested. So, at this point, it's just conversation. It's interrogation. It's interrogation. Yeah, it is. But his lawyer told him to stop cooperating with police. And after that, Womack refused to discuss the case with police or the media. He wasn't talking. Because everything he'd said, trying to be helpful and stuff, had been used against him. So he was like, not listening to my lawyers. I'm not speaking about this without my lawyer. So police, they were not able to get a confession from him. So they resorted to other means to get evidence against him. How scary would this be for a 15-year-old? Exactly. But, I mean, when you look at what they're thinking, and I don't know how much of their suspect profile was built just on the evidence of the case and what they found and Womack fit that or how much they built the suspect profile around fitting Womack. Right. Because, you know, they're searching for an adolescent who lives in the area who would know her. Womack fits all of that to a T, but I am not 100% sure if that's what the evidence is showing and they're like, well, this guy fits it. Or if they're saying, well, we think it's this guy... So here's the suspect profile we're building. Right. It's like, how much tunnel vision do they actually have? Exactly. And it kind of sounds like they have a lot of tunnel vision. Because when Womack was 17 years old, he worked as a busboy in a restaurant. And the police sent in an undercover officer into the restaurant to befriend him. Like, 
what sounds like it's not like oh send him undercover as like a you know restaurant patron it sounds like send him undercover as another busboy like full-on undercover sting operation but they didn't get any incriminating evidence because one i mean he didn't do it well and i will say i have very biased feelings because of the way you are telling it but it doesn't seem like he did it it feels like he just happened to be in the area he did the right thing by going to the family and being like, your daughter's missing. Yeah. Well, and whether he did it or didn't do it, are you going to just be like, this is your new co-worker, Jack? Oh, hi, Jack. So let me tell you about the time two years ago I murdered someone while you're, I don't know, True. picking up plates from like the table. What? That's stupid. Not going to be the time you have the confession conversation. No. But also, I mean, it just goes to show how much they really are tunnel visioning on him. I know they also are pursuing other avenues of investigation, but it really sounds like they're starting to convince themselves they have him. They just need to be able to prove it. Womack also passed two polygraph tests. And then in 1980, the authorities finally arrested him for Marsha's murder. But the charges were dismissed because they didn't really have any evidence. But even after the charges were dismissed, a lot of the police officers that were involved in the case, they continued to believe fully that Womack was guilty. Still, this tunnel vision. So DNA samples were taken from the semen that was collected from Marsh's body, but a lot of the samples were stored improperly and deteriorated over time. So that limited the investigator's ability to identify or exclude suspects. But because of this amount of sample they did have and that was saved in 2007 they did have enough dna evidence to exonerate womack in 2007 she was murdered in 1975 so he 32 years later he he'd never he'd been arrested and the charges dismissed but he was always the prime suspect suspect number one i'm sure he always had police officers doing drive-bys of his house i'm sure this ruined his life yeah this one he was 15 he's 47 now when finally the dna evidence exonerates him and it went on to pretty much exonerate everyone who was ever suspected of the crime so marsh's murderer had been a stranger not someone she'd known not someone living in the neighborhood their entire suspect profile they had been building their entire case on was wrong. That is, I mean, this was the beginning or right around the time that they were, the FBI was developing profiling. And so it was still a very new science. God, but that sucks because they were completely wrong. Oh, yeah. And pretty much from all the tests they did, the DNA, it didn't match anyone else. But a year later, in 2008, it did. What? Like someone in the system? Yeah. They got a DNA match. So in 2008, Jerome Sidney Barrett was charged with the assault and murder of Marsha Trimble. Because the DNA evidence they'd recovered from her body linked him to the crime. Now, you did mention that it had been partially deteriorated. But, like, so how reliable is this match? I'm not sure if it had, if the deterioration had caused the technology at the time not being able to do anything about it. Oh. And in 2007, 8, they can use it or what. I, it's a little confusing. I'm the, not sure yeah. the, the amount of degradation or the effect it really had, but it sounds like it's one that with the changing of technology, with what they had, they were able to kind of make up for it. No, that's, I didn't even think about that. The difference in the type of technology being used to test the DNA and how the technology we have now can read, like, like it's more sensitive. Yeah. I thought yours was going to be an unsolved case. Oh my God. No. So Barrett had been arrested just a few days after Marsha had disappeared. He'd been arrested on suspicion of a sexual assault of a local college student. And he was still in jail when Marsha's body was found. And despite him literally just after her disappearance being arrested for a sexual assault, 
nearby, and he had a past history of other attacks on women and children. Police had never looked at him for Marcia's murder. So in the days before Marcia's disappearance and her murder, there were two other horrific crimes that happened in the area. On February 2nd of 1975, Sarah Deprez, who was a Vanderbilt University student, and Vanderbilt is not far at all from the Green Hills neighborhood, she was murdered. And Barrett was linked to this murder at the same time as DNA was linked to Marcia's murder. So basically, when they pulled up his DNA profile, they got two different hits. One from Marsha's murder and one from Sarah's murder. So Sarah's at this point in time had been completely unsolved too? Completely unsolved. Oh my god. Yeah. If they would have looked into this guy who had been recently arrested, everything Mm -hmm. could have changed. Yeah, because 15 days after Sarah's murder and eight days before Marsha's murder... A Belmont University student was raped in Nashville. And in March, so a few weeks after the rape and a few weeks before Marsha's body was found, Barrett was arrested in connection to the rape and he was convicted of it. So he'd been arrested for this rape nearby, but they didn't look at him for Marsha's murder. They didn't look at him for Sarah's murder. And he was in jail. This is so frustrating because it's not like we're even talking about different police jurisdictions. Mm -mm. This is that that problem of like different detectives having different caseloads on their desk and not talking about it is what it seems like to me. Well, and it's the tunnel vision because their profile, they're looking for an adolescent in the neighborhood that knew her. Jerome is not any of those. He wasn't an adolescent at the time, I don't think. He didn't live in the neighborhood. He didn't know Marsha. They're not going to care. Their suspect profile is completely limiting them to looking at what I would say would be some of the first suspects I've looked at. Like, you find out that Marsha had been sexually assaulted and raped before she was murdered. Well, let's look at the rapists. I know. This is what's confusing to me is why would your first, like, let's look at other people her age. If there's a horrific crime, why are you thinking... I mean, yes, we have talked about adolescents being murderers, Mm -hmm. doing things like this. But why is that their first guess? Like, I agree with you. She was sexually assaulted and she was strangled. Shouldn't we be looking at the rapist and people in the area who have been convicted of these types of things? Or I'm really confused by their whole profiling of this case. Oh, same. I mean, it it sounds like they latched on to the fact that from all the evidence they're looking at, Marsha walked into the garage. And so it must have been someone she knew and was comfortable with, which must have been someone, you know, around her age and stuff. And I don't really get it. Because she was selling cookies, Jerome could have been like, oh, yeah, my wallet's in the garage over here. That's what I was just thinking. So easy to get her to walk in the garage. She's selling cookies. She's already going and talking to strangers. Or even if you, at this point, are not thinking it's Jerome, it could have been a friend's parent. Yep. It could have been an adult she trusts. I mean, literally, I just don't really understand why they were tunnel visioning on an adolescent. Which is kind of why I mentioned earlier... It sounds like they were building this suspect profile based on Womack. Totally. Not necessarily based on the evidence and, oh, Womack fits it. For Sarah's murder, though, Barrett received a life sentence. The court case for Sarah's murder happened before Marsha's. So for that one, he received a life sentence. And then on July 18th of 2009, Jerome Barrett was found guilty of second-degree murder And he was sentenced to 44 years to run consecutively to his life sentence he received for Sarah's murder. Marsha's murder, though, it changed Nashville forever. I mean, like I mentioned at the beginning, a lot of people say that's the day Nashville died. And in 2002, so Marsha's case was still cold, the Nashville police captain said, in that moment, Nashville lost its innocence. Our city has never been and never will be the same again. Every man, woman, and child knew that if something that horrific could happen to that little girl, it could happen to anyone. And that is the case 
of Marsha Trimble's murder. Okay, that was absolutely horrifying, and I'm... Glad that we have three liters of wine. Yeah, I really am. And the police captain saying, summarized, like, if it can happen to her, it could happen to anyone, and that was, like, the city cluing into that. I think that's a common thing. Um, I'm making a really weird connection, but I'm reading a book called Therese Reckin by Emile Zola, and it is a book that's written in, like, the late 1800s. This is a very old, old novel But there's a conversation that happens um, like a third of the way in. And it's this group of people talking about murderers and murderers not being caught and like this happening in the cities. And half the group is horrified at the idea that there could be murderers like on the loose, that the police haven't caught all of them. And the other half of the group is like, no, there's totally people who are murderers who you're walking by on the street, you just, they just haven't been caught. Yeah. And it's just that it's similar. Cause it's that mentality of like that moment when you're like, Oh shit, that could happen anywhere. And people may or may not be caught for it. it. It's a horrifying thing. And like, I bring that up because it's like, that was the late 1800s when this was written. And that, that thought was talked about. And we're still talking about similar things today. Oh yeah. I mean, You think about how many times, you know, you hear of a murder in a small town or close-knit community, and the mindset is always, we never thought it could happen here. You know, we know that happens. Everyone knows that horrible, terrible, unspeakable things happen. But not here. But not here. And Marsha's murder made everyone in the city realize, no, it does happen here. Because the Green Hills neighborhood is is the most it could never happen here in Nashville. Right. Marsha's family and Marsha is the, I mean, it's, it's the pinnacle of, well, it would never happen to them. And it did. Yeah. And everyone who saw the news, who heard of the case, had to swallow the fact that it really could happen anywhere to anyone. Well, and that's going to be evidenced by the fact that I'm about to talk about another case in Nashville. Here we go, Brittany. What is your Nashville murder case? The case I'm talking about is the tanning bed murders. Like Final Destination? Not like Final Destination. That's just what I think tanning bed. Same. What is that? Final Destination 3? It is. Yeah. That's the same one with the roller coaster, isn't it? It is. It's it's the same one with uh, Ryan Merriman. Yes. You met him. I did meet him. I, He's I married. Met- He's married. He lives in Oklahoma. I have his autograph, but I got that in high school because I went to high school with his cousin. Our claim to fame. Yes. Okay. The sources I used. An article from the Tennessean by Adam Tamburin. An article from Middle Tennessee Mysteries by Michelle Willard. An article from U.S. News. And an article from Nashville WKRN by Josh Breslow. Melissa Chilton, who's 18 and her friend Tiffany Campbell, who was also 18. They both lived in Nashville, and they were co-workers at Exotic Tan for Men. Exotic Tan for Men, they also did business under the name Private Moments. So... Wait, Exotic Tan for Men? Like it's a men-only tanning salon? Well, that's because it's not really... It's kind of one of those cover things where... I mean, I guess, but that's just weird. Like, tanning for men. So a lot of the young women's duties included exotic dancing for clients, but their friends and family said that neither Melissa nor Tiffany would perform sex work. That was not a part of this business. Doesn't mean it wasn't happening, but they were not partaking in that. Okay. Melissa was from Brush Creek, Tennessee, and she was a former cheerleader and a graduate of Gordonsville High School near Carthage. She was a freshman psychology major at MTSU and lived on campus, but worked in Nashville. Tiffany came from a working class family and was an alumna of McGavock High School in Nashville. Sorry if I said that wrong. Nashville. Nashvillians? Yeah. Nashvillites? Nashvillites. I like that one. Sorry if I said that wrong. That sounds like a pill. (laughs) Take one Nashvillite per day and you'll see results in two weeks or less. What kind of results? Better sleep. With Nashvilleite, I can wake up energized with my kids at 5 a.m. on Christmas when they scream, Santa brought them presents. <laughs> the forced cheerfulness. Basically. 
take one Nashvilleite, y'all. But this is not a medication podcast. That would be a strange podcast. That would be really strange. Pill podcast. On February 22nd, 1996, Melissa and Tiffany were found dead in the laundry um, slash break room of exotic tan for men. Wait, they were just found in the break room? They were in the break room. Yeah, so it had been like a day at work. Both of them had been stabbed nearly a hundred times combined. Oh my god. No murder weapon was found, but investigators believe that it was a large double-edged knife, possibly a bayonet. Like the end of a gun in the Civil War? Yeah. I mean, I guess that, I don't know, I just, it's interesting because I guess at first, double-edged knife, it's like, that's kind of what you picture knives. I don't know, outside of like the medieval fair, if I've ever seen a double-edged knife in my life. I feel like a sword is the only thing I think of as double-edged. Yeah, a sword or like a Romeo and Juliet dagger. Oh, yeah. But knives in the kitchen and stuff, like, it's not double-edged. Even like hunting knives, the most kind of edge you might get on the back is like a sawtooth for cutting other things, but it's not to be double-edged. Right. That's weird. A hundred times, though. MNPD spokesman Don Aaron said at the time that the women were seen alive around 11 o'clock in the morning, but they were dead by 2.10 in the afternoon. So this is like the middle of a workday they were murdered? It was the middle of a workday, and they were found by the owner of the business in the break room. So he's like going in to like have lunch or like restock the break room fridge in the middle of the day and finds them. Whoa! I, I assumed it was like... They were murdered overnight or something, like, and found in the morning. That's exactly what I thought when I was first reading about this. But no, it's, like, mid-morning. And the manager, he he said he found them after he had not been able to reach them by phone. So, like, he wasn't even there, but he got to the, the place of business and was like, okay, they're not up at the front. Like, where are they? What's going on? And that's when he found them. Were they the only ones working that day? It sounds like they probably were, considering the phones weren't being answered. Yeah. There was obviously a lot of hatred that was in these wounds. I mean, stabbed that many times. Oh, yeah. This was like a a passionate murder. It's vicious. Extremely vicious. No, I say passionate in like the like... Like anger passion. Yes. not, Not a positive form of that word. But there was also no forced entry. And video surveillance had been removed... And taken from the business. So there was no evidence. Like this person knew to take the footage. I mean that has to be a co-worker. But I guess if it. You know it could have been a customer. Who has any knowledge of security systems. In businesses. I mean literally. Okay actually I kind of recant that full statement. Because I feel like most anyone would know. Well in the back room. The office or break room. Is where you're going to find the security systems. And it probably wouldn't be that hard to dick around and find what looks like a VCR that you can take the tape out of. Exactly. Police theorized that at least one of the girls, Melissa or Tiffany, knew the assailant because the killer did not sign in like most customers would do. And the fact that they were found in an employee's only area, not in one of the rooms where the customers were entertained. Oh. Yeah. So investigators believed that this was a crime of passion. Again, because of how violent this was. Yeah, so like maybe one of their significant others or something. There was not a lot of evidence found for this case. It was very scarce. And again, this is because the killer had taken the surveillance video. And he also stole the VCR. So like not only the tape, but the whole system. Oh yeah, I mean, it sounds like if not an inside job, it's something that the person who did it knew exactly what they were doing. Yes, they definitely did. First responders... I'm sorry, this is the most awkward thing to pour in the entire world. (laughs) I know. Okay, that's good enough. Well, I I can't stop not giving you a Tyler Moore. It's a hundred gallons of wine. Well, it's like very heavy. And that's why I'm making you pour and I didn't want to because... You know what? It makes me feel small. It's like... You know what this is? It's It's a prop. It's the opposite of the little ones. You know the little ones where you can feel like you're like a big, like you're a giant and it's like a tiny the bottle? Like alcohol you get on like a plane? Yeah. Yeah. 
No, but the, it, this is a prop bottle of wine for, I, I don't know, a play where everyone shrinks to be three feet tall. Oh my god, it's it's wine from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Well, that would be a building, but yeah. <laughs> okay. I know, but your case is a lot, and I just need to focus on brighter things like wine, and not two young women being brutally murdered at work by someone they knew and trusted. I think that that's what's getting me about this, is... It's so obvious that whoever did this, they fully trusted. Yeah, definitely. This was, at minimum, a good friend who murdered them. I know. And, you know, it it does sound like it is someone they knew. But like I was saying, there's not a lot of evidence. So not only was the surveillance stolen in that VCR, but first responders to the scene, they also contaminated it completely by walking through the blood. To try to help Tiffany and Melissa. Were they still alive? They didn't know. I mean, that's fair, though. Like, I'm actually surprised the amount of cases we do that don't have a lot of... going in the middle of the scene. Yeah, a lot of contamination from paramedics because so often, unless someone's, like, full-on decomposing, someone has to check if they're alive and see if you can still save them. Yeah, exactly. In the days following the killings, Metro Police followed leads. They questioned all the customers of the tanning salon. There were a lot of suspects because of the nature of Tiffany and Melissa's work. And rumors about problem customers in the past. Like, there was a lot of investigating and, like, interviewing. That's the word I meant. There was a lot of interviewing and people to talk to. Oh, yeah. Robbery, though, was completely ruled out as a motive because employee... Employees were not allowed to carry cash, and all payments were deposited immediately in a safe. So, like, they're not going to have, like, money on them. By March 1996, Nashville Crime Stoppers had offered a $1,000 reward, and that reward ended up ballooning to $70,000 by 2017. Wow. I also get the mindset of why officers and, like, investigative Forces like have rewards for these things, but I just hate it. I I hate the idea that it's like, wow, a crime could be solved because someone is like, you know what? I do know something, and that's a lot of money. Like it's basically selling the justice this their their families deserve. But I like to look at it in a different way. I mean, yes, obviously the money is an incentive, but if someone is for some reason scared to come forward. Maybe the money is something that can influence them. That can be like, okay, this scares me because I don't know what the repercussions are going to be. I'll be anonymous to the public, not to, you know, obviously you wouldn't be to the police because you have to give them your information Mm -hmm. to get the reward. But it's like, but man, that money would really help. And it's bargaining. I mean, or even just on your same mindset of if I need to get out of here because me... Just telling what I know puts me in danger. That's enough money for me to get out of here, for me to protect myself. So, I mean, I, that you're right. I get, I get that. It all depends on the person who has the information. It could go either way. It could go someone who's like, oh, well, I was not going to share this because I don't fucking care. But now I'm getting paid. So, sure, I'll go talk. Like, this family having answers, it's not worth 10000 but it's worth twenty. Like, ugh. Yeah. I know. The case ended up going cold until 2013. So, oh. 17 years later. Bam. Investigators questioned dozens of men, including serial killer Paul Dennis Reed. He's the fast food one that I was telling you about earlier. Paul. Oh. Yeah. They even questioned him about the case. But in 2013, Nashville police thought they had solved the case when they indicted Patrick Streeter, who was in a California prison at the time, on two counts of first degree murder. So, Patrick, like I said, he was already in prison in California. And it was from a string of robberies that he had been convicted of. And detectives at the time announced that they had found enough evidence to get an indictment. He was taken back to Nashville to face the premeditated murder charges of Tiffany and Melissa in 2015 after he finished his sentence in California. So, like, his sentence still had a couple of years. They waited for him to finish that and then brought him back to Nashville. Why? I have no idea. That just A lot of it is probably, like clerical stuff i mean mean, again this is something we we talk about but probably not enough justice takes time 
I know, but it just it feels like having like them waiting for his sentence to be up, even though in their minds they're like, "This is the guy that did it." Like we have enough, we're we're doing it. That just seems so disrespectful of their families. Have to be like, we know, we got the guy, we know who it is, but you gotta wait a couple years for you know answers and justice. Sorry, Tiffany and Melissa's parents and siblings and loved ones. Chill. Like, well, I don't. I get what you're saying, but at the same time, maybe it was part of California law that whatever they had wasn't enough for immediate extradition. Oh, to like Nashville. you can't extradite current prisoners without a certain level of maybe. Yeah, I mean that makes sense. I'm just spitballing here, but it. There, I feel like it is not just a like we're gonna let him finish that one out and then we'll get him. There has to be a reason behind why they did have to wait a couple of years. I mean, I feel like we might have a listener who maybe went to law school in California <laughs> who might have some insight into extradition law and might be able to text us and answer. And Brittany, you'll probably be the one to respond because I'm awful at responding to texts and I am so sorry. Uh, yeah, he reads them all, but he responds like 25% of the time. I am busy and also so short-minded. <laughs> you do, you read and forget. Patrick was actually an ex-boyfriend of Tiffany's Ooh. and he had been interviewed by detectives several times over the years, also while he was incarcerated in California. Okay. However, the indictment was a result of investigative work and interviews by cold case Sergeant Pat Postiglione and Detective Danny Satterfield over so many months, along with some scientific evidence that they did have. However, specific details of this evidence, they were not publicly discussed. So we don't know exactly what they had on him, but it was enough to, it was enough to indict him. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like a lot of that the specifics and stuff is not going to be publicly known until after trials and stuff. Unfortunately slash fortunately, depending on how you look at this case, five years later, the Davidson County District Attorney announced on June 29th in a hearing that the charges against Patrick Streeter would be dropped because of DNA evidence. The state had decided not to immediately take him to trial, and Patrick Streeter had served two years in prison waiting on this trial to happen after they indicted him before the state agreed to let him post bail in November. Oh, because he had, like, finished his sentence in California. Yes, he finished his sentence, then he came over to Nashville and was being held for two years. He was held for two years and... Before the trial. No, I know. And that is one of the really messed up things. But like he had been denied bail because they were totally convinced that he was the one that did it. Five years after Patrick Streeter's arrest. So in June 2018, the state announced that it would drop the charges against him. At the time, the district attorney's office said that after scientific testing and DNA analysis, it would not be appropriate to take this matter to trial. AKA, they did not have enough evidence to actually prove that he did this. Yeah. I mean, I get what you mean when you said fortunately and unfortunately. Because fortunately for him, I mean, they don't have the evidence. He didn't do it. No, I mean, we don't know if he did or not. He could have done it. We have no idea. But he also could be completely innocent. We yeah. There's not enough evidence. Yeah. But also, unfortunately for Melissa and Tiffany... And their loved ones. I know. They have so much hope. You know, they they have this guy. They've charged him. Oh, just kidding. Charges dropped. Exactly. And it's just, Streeter at this time, he was 42 years old. And like I said, he did serve two years in jail awaiting trial. But they let him out early while they tested this evidence. Realized, oh shit, we don't have enough. We can't even take him to trial. And there's there have been no additional arrests since then and no new information has ever been released so unfortunately this case remains unsolved god uh, when you said earlier that the police thought they'd found the right guy i knew i i had the feeling okay this isn't the right guy but i had the hope of okay but then the next one they find is is but no. god i just i hate cold cases and yeah, that's know. obvious. I mean, everyone does because yes, we, it, it's cold cases. There's there's no justice. There's no answer. We always want them to be solved and solved justly. But 
I just, Tiffany and Melissa deserve so much more. They do. And their murders did have an impact on Nashville. A year later in 1997, Metro Council passed a 17-point regulation that required dancers to register with the city, created a licensing board for adult clubs, imposed a three-foot buffer between customers and dancers, and there were also a lot of other requirements. But they were trying to keep these dancers safe. Yeah. Over the years, many parts of the regulation were challenged in court, but it resulted in the closure of at least 30 adult businesses, many of which promoted sex work. Yeah, I mean, I I can see the pros and cons. The point I'm trying to make is the city saw what happened and were trying to keep women safe who were working. Yeah, that's that's great. And I, I like that a lot of the efforts made are to keep the women safe, keep their dancers safe and have a level of protection. But I can also see this is so much more adding to the stigmatization of sex work. But I can see the adding yourself to a registration list if you're a dancer, driving a lot of dancers to be more underground. And into situations that are a lot more unsafe than they were prior to this. Melissa and Tiffany's murders, like I said, to this day are still unsolved. And the investigation is still active and open. It was just two years ago. That Patrick was completely exonerated of their presumptions of his guilt. And these things just break my heart because I'm like, wow, this happened in 1996. That was 24 years ago at this point. And there's nothing to go on. I know. Melissa and Tiffany should be in their 40s today. Like, they should be alive and enjoying their lives and being in their 40s. Being not yet even to the halfway point of their lives. So, Melissa and Tiffany's case is one of the most infamous unsolved cases in Nashville. Well, Nashville has a, a lot of really fucked up cases. I know, but I feel like one of the points we started to make earlier is sounds like everywhere does. I mean, that is true. Because <laughs> I think we could pick any larger city. Yes, and, and have the same episode. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, have horrifying cases. Like in my case, this happens anywhere to anyone. In the... We've done cases that happen in tiny-ass towns of a couple hundred people, and we've done cases that happen in metropolitan areas of multi-million people. Damn. Nashville, though. Music City. We're not feeling very musical right now. No, we're not. So we need to, like, turn the music back on in our lives because we turned it off for this case. Turn the music on. Turn it inside out. I don't actually it's know like how the song goes. It's like turn the beat around. Yeah, no, yeah, I know. <laughs> we just don't have the rights to that. So thank you so much, Lisa. This was an interesting topic. I I haven't really looked into cases in Nashville. And so I like the opportunity to bring the city to our attention. I know. We've done, I think, a few cases out of Tennessee. The ones that come to mind. I mean, you've done the West Memphis Three, which... Is not in Tennessee, but Memphis, metropolitan area. And then you did the... It was in one of our serial killers or like road truckers murders. Like the I-40 killer. I don't know. There was Tennessee in it. The redheaded murderer. Yes. Yep. That he was one. in Tennessee mm-hmm. in like the Knoxville area. We've had a few crimes. Also, I guess because I-40 goes through Tennessee. I feel like we've had murders Multiple. that pop up along I-40. Is that murder highway? Because it kind of sounds like it when I think about it. Maybe. I feel like something is known as Murder Highway, and that's probably it. Doesn't it go across the entire United States? North Carolina to California. Yeah. But, you know, I feel like Nashville... I never really think of Nashville as this major city with these murders and stuff, because I feel like it has the image of music city and fun and stuff, but... Like any major city, there are these horrific crimes that happen every day. But regardless of that, I still want to go to Nashville. I You'd love it. I would love it. And even though I sometimes think black pepper is too spicy because I am the whitest person you will ever see in the world. Oh my god, dude. Pepper is not spicy. Sometimes it is. We're, I, no. Oh my god. We can't have this fight. 
while being recorded because I, I'm too passionate about that being absolute bullshit. I literally asked for my pad tie to have zero stars and I like look at them and I'm like, look at the translucenceness of my skin. Translucency. That too. I, I ask for both. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I still want to try Nashville hot chicken and I still want to visit the fake Parthenon y'all have. Pantheon? No, that's wow. Parthenon. I want to see it, and if y'all want to, if y'all want to see Nashville too, or if you like listening to this episode, either one, whichever you choose, make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Give us those five stars. We love hearing what y'all have to say. We love reading y'all's feedback. So head over to Apple Podcasts, or if any podcast platform you're listening to us has like a rate review option, do it there. And while you're at it, be sure to like and follow us on social. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And with that, this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.